I remember as a kid once, my parents watching a documentary about this Buddhist monk named Thich Quang Duc. His biography starts out in the predictable way. Somber kid, moves to a monastery, and then a lot of mist and dewdrops and other monks not talking. Nothing a kid would find interesting. And then all of a sudden we're on a busy city street in Vietnam, and the monk is engulfed in flames. Maybe you've seen a famous photograph or a video of the scene. In 1963, Taekwon Duc burned himself to protest the persecution of Buddhists by the South Vietnamese government. Two of his fellow monks provided him with a cushion and then doused him with gasoline. And then his whole community sat around in lotus position and watched him burn. That day, I was on the floor playing but I saw the image of the monk reflected in the glass of a painting hanging across from our TV. The monk in flames doesn't move. He's literally sitting still, like he's feeling the warmth of the sun. I just stared at the image, trying to solve it. How do things get so extreme that a community decides this, this calm embrace of pain, is the only way forward? The monk popped into my head recently, because of the story we're about to tell. It's about a community that also resorted to extreme measures to get justice when nothing else worked and didn't back down, even when it meant causing pain to one of their own. It's a version of what a lot of communities are doing today, taking a hard stand against sexual harassment and assault. The system has failed, so communities are doing the work themselves, using social media shaming, ostracism, professional excommunication, basically whatever punishment is painful enough to make it register that it is unacceptable to talk or act or treat people in a certain way. Trying to shift a moral code by brute force and banish people who break the code. So today we ask, what is the role of pain in making social change? This is Invisibilia. I'm Elise Spiegel. And I'm Hannah Rosen. And today we have a story about a community calling people out on social media for sexual harassment and abuse. Hannah, explain where it takes place. So the story takes place in Richmond, Virginia, where producer Yoe Shaw and I spent some time in the hardcore music scene. There are these two reporters who live out there. Their names are Nikki Stein and Laura Kramer, and they witnessed a call out. It totally stuck with them. Uh, Laura actually played a small role in the events. So they told us about it and helped us report it. So Hannah is telling the story, trying to understand what the act of calling this person out accomplished and what it cost. Listeners, I got to say that there are some graphic descriptions of sex in this story and abuse. Also, there is a ton of cursing, so it might not be appropriate for younger listeners And just so that you know, for this story, we talk both to people who've been abused and to an admitted abuser. We're going to use the first names of certain characters in the story to protect privacy. So, Hannah, take it away. One thing I learned in Richmond is that a lot of hardcore kids have an origin story, a reason they sound so murderous and angry on stage. That's definitely true of Emily. Miss Virginia Sweetheart, 1994. Yep, a child beauty pageant winner. And she was four. It was her mom's idea. It was a lot of pulling of hair and 
dresses that look like curtains is bad. <laughs> um, how old were you when you did this? Um, like two to four. Emily grew up in a small Virginia town, and one of her earliest memories is her mom putting mascara on her. I'm like this bleach blonde, blue-eyed girl, and like to her perfection. And I think that like she has spent her entire life trying to make me be something I'm not. It wasn't until she was 17 and going away to college that Emily found a place where she could fully be herself, about an hour away from home, the hardcore scene in Richmond, Virginia. I just hate small talk. How's your day? What did you do? And you don't have to do that at a punk or hardcore show. Instead of makeup and dainty dresses, it was mayhem. The music was harder and more powerful. The Richmond hardcore scene was like a tight little tribe, with its favorite tattoo parlors, barber shops, and certain coffee shops, where Emily and her new friends would hang out nearly every day, like for hours, sometimes playing games like little kids. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. I visited a bunch of times this winter, and every time I got back, I would say to my husband, I lived my life all wrong. Because here was a tribe that didn't care about other people's rules. They had their own strict rules, for sure, like what you're supposed to wear and what you can sing and what you can't drink and smoke. But that strictness, that was what bonded them, defined them as a tight little tribe, and us against all of them where all that mattered was hanging out and making music and mischief. And in this family, it was not the dinner table where people gathered around to connect. It was the mosh pit, the space in front of the stage at a show where people kick and punch the air and sometimes make contact and break a tooth or a nose. But that's okay, even expected. They just think differently about pain than a lot of people do. Here's Emily. Did you ever get hit? Yeah, yeah. There is, like, always the blow to the stomach that you don't expect from, like, a flying foot. Richmond always, like, stuck out to me as being, like, specifically violent. Like, you always feared for your life at shows, but, like, that's a part of the fun. Someone knocked my hand. Is your hand okay? Yeah. That's me. When we went to a show, I got really into it, too. They swarm, and then they unswarm, and they're just like, ugh, ugh. Now, when Emily moved to Richmond in 2006, it was mostly guys ruling the mosh pit. That's just how it was. Hardcore was about being hard. And Emily was down with that. I was only friends with guys. After college, she settled in, got a job, made this her new family. She'd drive around town with the guys and heckle frat boys, tour with her best friend's band. And this was her life. Until something happened. She was single at the time and met this cute guy in a touring band, and he seemed really into her. And she was kind of excited and told another girl on the scene who said, Like, don't hang out with him. He's shitty. But Emily didn't pay attention to that warning. I didn't believe her. <laughs> Emily just figured this girl was a salty ex, as she put it, just sore. So she did see him. His entire band was on tour and crashed at her apartment, and she told him he could sleep in her bed. What happened next Emily agreed to share, even though she doesn't want to put pressure on other women to share their stories if they don't want to. Here's what happened. They started making out, but Emily said she just wanted to go to bed, partly because his bandmates were outside. 
so he responded by getting up and locking the door. I hated that. And I didn't say anything because I was, like, kind of uncomfortable. Eventually, she said again that she wanted to stop and go to sleep. So they did go to sleep. And I wake up to him touching me, like, on top of my underwear and then under my underwear. Um, I pretended to be asleep because I was very uncomfortable with it um, and hoping that he would just stop on his own. And he eventually did after, like, I guess he got what he wanted out of it. And it's, like, ruined, like, that it's just stuck in my head and, like, my body and my skin. In the morning, Emily snuck out to work, but didn't tell anyone what had happened. My big thing was I didn't want to cause a scene. I just wanted him gone. But that was a few years ago, and back then there was no way to make him gone. This band had power and status in the scene, and there was a feeling that well-liked guys were protected from accusations. There was even a saying, Good dude backed hard. He's a good dude, and we back him hard. So back off with your complaints. That was the state of the scene until pretty recently. And like most people, Emily had accepted it. Yeah, (laughs) it's like pretty normal. But other experiences in her 20s had taught her something different. Like, she dated a guy who'd actually asked if he could kiss her, a first time for her, and helped her understand that she'd wholesale swallowed a lot of the misogyny in the scene. And so she was starting to see the scene that she loved a little differently. Focus in on things that over the last 10 years, she'd kind of ignored. Like... There was a band that made a 7-inch cover of a girl getting ejaculated on her face. If you opened your eyes to it, a crude kind of sexism was all over the hardcore scene. In lyrics, on t-shirts, album covers, online, on hardcore message boards. The online trolls would even say, No clit in the pit. No clit in the pit. Translation, no women allowed in the mosh pit. So in all sorts of ways, Emily got the message that if she ever complained, the trolls would side with the guys who had power and take her down. Retaliation. They could go on the internet and tell the internet how crazy of a girl I am, uh, how much of a bitch I am. Did you have a sense that there just would, like that guys would do that and there wouldn't be any consequences for that? Yeah. Yeah. And, and would you guess that most women felt that way at the time? Yeah. Definitely. I feel like a lot of women felt that that was a part of being a woman. But then, Emily and other people in the scene who'd felt left out, sidelined, hurt, got hold of a new weapon to fight back with and make the people who'd hurt them finally listen up. Call out. Call outs. Posts on Tumblr or Twitter or Facebook that started appearing about five or six years ago in social justice circles around the country as part of a new vigilance in the air that seeped into fringe scenes like Richmond Hardcore out of a conviction that the police and courts and society in general had failed to respond to things like sexual violence and racism and men abusing their positions of power to do bad things. Harm, abuse, men being rapists. Fuck him. Callouts were something between a warning and a wanted poster. A member of the community would name-check someone publicly. That's the abuser. He shitty. The person they'd harmed 
That's the victim. The victim. If the community agrees the abuser is guilty, then the abuser becomes the known abuser. Cut him out from your life. And then members of the community will decide on the appropriate punishment, from gentle rebuke all the way to banishment. Gone. No official sentencing code. No stand up and address the judge, please. This is vigilante justice, which gets the job done in its own damn way. And it caught on fast in the Richmond hardcore scene. That's what he deserves. A guy in Richmond accused of assaulting two women. He was kicked out of his band and disappeared from the scene. And then a case Emily heard about. Several young women accused a big-deal West Coast band guy of assaulting them, some when they were underage. Again, gone. Was that the first time you it ever occurred to you that a guy with power could be taken down? Yeah. Yeah. Because they were a big band. It felt good. Like, it felt like that's what he deserves. Like, that's what he gets. Like, these dudes should be called out. They did shitty things. That's what he deserves. Emily hadn't seen before that just saying it out loud would crush the bad guys, even bad guys in a big deal band. It gave her a kind of courage. So Emily started inching towards a totally different position, talking about what made her angry as a woman in the scene on a much bigger stage. Pretty sure it started as a joke. In 2015, a guy Emily knew called her up and said he was starting a band and he needed a front man. Or, haha, how about a front woman? And I said, yes. Right away? Yeah. I was like, I want to front a band. Like, I don't see anyone else doing it, really. So I want to do this. So they recorded a demo, named themselves Ice, or to be searchable online, Icy Motherfuckers. She wrote some lyrics, testing how far she could go. Uh, look to the ground where your eyes belong, rather be unseen. This song is about girls feeling like they're crazy and that they're making shit up. Seeing how much she could actually say out loud. I was so nervous and excited and scared. And then came a test, a hideous one. Because to prove her commitment to the cause, Emily would have to consider inflicting some serious pain on someone she loved. It was August 2016, and Emily was in the back of the van with her headphones on, doing her favorite thing. We were on our way to Florida on tour with his band, and I was just tagging along. Riding along on tour with her best friend's band. Her best friend since high school. The person she depended on when she was most down. Like when she broke up with a boyfriend. I, like, couldn't move. He wouldn't force conversation or force make me laugh. Um, he just knew that I just, like, needed company and someone to be there. He was in a popular Richmond hardcore band, and they toured a lot. And Emily loved going on the road with them. And we got a phone call in the van, and it was like, y'all can't come. It was the promoter in Florida. He'd gotten a call from someone who announced herself as the victim of Emily's best friend. She accused him of sending her a sexually explicit photo unsolicited. Emily's best friend in the world was being called out. So the band was booted from the lineup. Although behind the scenes, the guys thought they could still save this tour, work something out, which in Emily's mind translated to, they don't believe this woman. The person like on the phone was like, this girl is known for like doing shit like this. This is like what she does. Like, And I'm in the back like, this is literally happening in front of me right now. Like, They're calling this girl crazy. 
and maybe she's not crazy and maybe it did happen. But like, I'm surrounded by six of the people that are like against what I'm thinking. So what do I do? After the break, what Emily decides to do. This is Invisibilia. This message comes from NPR sponsor Pocket Casts. Are you a power podcast listener? Then try Pocket Casts Plus, made for podcast fans who want even more from their podcasting app. Pocket Casts Plus has more ways to listen, access to cloud storage, and more customization options. And they're offering a free three-month trial to elevate your listening experience. Find out more at pocketcasts.com NPR. I'm Linda Holmes. There's more stuff to watch these days than you can ever get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour. Twice a week, we give you the lowdown on what's worth your time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Invisibilia. This is Elise Spiegel. Hannah's in the middle of her story about call-out culture. A woman named Emily has started to speak up about abusers in the Richmond hardcore scene, and she was tagging along with her best friend on tour when he was called out for abusing women. Just a reminder, there is a lot of cursing and talk about sex and abuse in this story. Here's Hannah. Emily felt paralyzed in the back of the van. In her head... There was no easy way out, no middle ground. She felt she had to choose between her very best friend in the world and the cause she was becoming passionate about. Do I remain friends with him? Do I not? He was always there for me, like... (sighs) But then a more wounded voice inside her. Betrayed. Yeah. Because what he was accused of doing had happened to me. And then the loudest voice inside her, the one that she now used on stage. As the front woman of this band that talks out against the things that he has done to women, you have to speak against these things that he did. Because people are, like, looking to you right now, knowing that you, like, you are his best friend and people know that. By the time they got back to Richmond, she knew what to do. She sat down at her laptop and typed up a Facebook post. I disown everything he has done. I do not think it's okay. These are horrible things. These are not okay. I am not okay with it. I believe women. Emily decided to dish some pain. She felt she had to because there were greater things that needed to be accomplished. Even when it was your best friend, you didn't back him. Yeah, So that meant what? Like, damn. (laughs) Like, that means something. That's strong. power. Like, that's a powerful message. Was that hard for you to do? Yeah. It was extremely hard. Like, still to this day, I still don't have a friend like him. So I'm still, like, struggling with it. Did you know at that moment what you were losing? Yeah, but... I, I feel stronger about believing, like, these women over being his best friend at this point. That's, like, how strongly I felt about it. Emily never spoke to her best friend again. He left the band, and he disappeared from the scene. And after that, Emily heard rumors 
that he'd gotten kicked out of his apartment, that he'd lost his job, moved to a new city, that he was not doing well. Emily thought about texting him a few times, but she didn't. She felt she was doing the right thing, inflicting this pain even when it cost her. Because we as punks are supposed to be better than that. We're supposed to like have better behaviors than that. We are aware of the outside world and like what's abusive and what's not. We're supposed to like police each other. Emily was all in now, no longer a guy's girl. She was there for the women of hardcore. She helped another woman start a band to front, confronted abuse with her voice and her lyrics. Fuck this shitty dude in this band. Ice shows felt different. Girls swarmed the mosh pit. She toured in Florida, New York, D.C. And on stage, she was fearless. Ice was part of a growing tribe within the tribe in hardcore that demanded space and recognition. The music is for chicks and all the bullshit we deal with on a daily basis, sexual harassment, abuse. I'm singing about chicks being empowered, and I felt good about it. And she kept at it, even when guys made nasty comments about her online. Not giving a shit about what anyone thinks. Once at an ice show, she saw a dude push to the front of the mosh pit and start belting out her lyrics, which were about guys calling girls crazy for making stuff up. And to see a dude singing along about a song I wrote about them made me want to punch him in that moment. I was just hyped. And she did, right in his face. She showed us a video. Oh! <laughs> oh my God. Did you punch him hard? Yeah. Did you like punching him? Yeah, I felt good. It was great to see a bunch of women up front singing and finger pointing. Chicks to the front, women to the front. Chicks to the front, women to the front. <laughs> Then one night in October 2016, Emily was about to go to bed when. Yo, Emily, fuck your band. Fuck you. Whatever lyric was in your band no longer applies. Emily is a pseudo feminist with a track record of putting women down. I hope to God all of you question your friendship with that scum. This is Herbert. Herbert Rafael Vasquez Castro. I was born in DR, but I live here in Richmond where Herbert had been in and out of the hardcore scene for years. And he knew Emily. She was dating someone in his friend group. And he'd heard this story about Emily that went against her whole crusader for women thing. And he decided people needed to know about it. So he took it to Twitter. Emily was being called out. You're fake. Like, you shouldn't be, yeah, I'm like in a girl band and like I do shit for girls. The story he'd heard about Emily was that when she was in high school, Emily had been involved in posting a nude photo online of someone she knew. We'll call this woman by her first initial, J, to protect her privacy. Jay didn't ask Herbert to call Emily out, but as it happens, she was happy that he did. Here she is, remembering that day in high school when she saw her naked body online. And I just remember just immediately having this panic rise up in me because I knew what it was. No, I was not just standing there, and no, it was not just me in the photo. I just remember going on 
And there it was. And there was Emily right after posting like the crying laughter emojis. She's thrilled that this just happened to me. She's so happy. After Herbert's call out, Emily had initially defended herself on Facebook. And that put Jay over the edge. Jay had also been part of the Richmond scene, and she'd been watching Emily's rise as a feminist. Emily's new platform, all the women cheering her on. The music is for chicks and all the bullshit we deal with on a daily basis. If sexual you want to call that abuse. confronting a large crowd of people about sexual Girl hate, our male-dominated sexual. scene, and I'm guilty as charged. Every time I would see a picture of her or see something about her band, it really just pissed me off. It just I felt like it was very unfair. I really wanted to be so involved in in women being a part of hardcore. It was something that I always believed in. And the one person who started it all in Richmond is the person who had done something terrible to me in the past. So she wrote a post on a page called the Sisterhood Group. At the time, Emily was known for being a hater of women and literally said... And the members of the sisterhood immediately recognized the call to action. Victim. Abuser. Punish. Even though Emily was a visible feminist in the scene, good dude backed hard did not apply. No exceptions, not even if the dude was a girl. So the comments piled on in the sisterhood group, on Herbert's Twitter, and beyond. Completely fucked up and disgusting. Are her friends going to say something? Or do we expect silence when a popular white woman is accused of some serious shit? Oh my god. As a member of this safe space, I want to know. But then there were other girls in the thread that were saying, oh, well, she did this to me. Like, literally, people in, like, different states and shit across the country, it was just started getting retweeted, like, left and right. People who don't even know me being like, yo, yes, this is, like, totally right. It just wouldn't stop. It just, like wouldn't stop. Sometimes the known abuser tries to deny it or make excuses or somehow make what happened seem small and insignificant. But Emily didn't do that. She didn't feel like Herbert had the right to tell any victim's story. But once Jay stepped in, Emily committed herself fully to the accountability process. She turned herself over to a panel of peers who interpreted the victim's wishes, which were basically that Emily stepped back from her prominent role in the scene. And she owned up to sins of her teenage past. I just was a high school bully, like a slut shamer. It's like, it's just, I was just a mean person. She hadn't actually posted Jay's nudes. A friend had done it. But to Emily, that was not an excuse. I laughed in the same thread and, like, engaged in the conversation at her expense, and that's what I did. But I... But it's not just... There was more Emily did. Every day, she would come home from school, get on hardcore message boards, and bully and berate other women, slut-shame them, just like other guys were doing, but she earned a special place as being among the meanest and the cruelest. We even heard about unrelenting abuse aimed at a specific person that went on for years. Emily confirmed this, but the survivor didn't want to share their story. There were other victims, too. I was at a party, and everyone was drunk. 
And there was this girl that I really hated there. And I went in the room when she was fucking around with someone. And the next day at school, Emily told everyone about it. And, like, essentially slut-shame her for hooking up with someone. And that was just evil. That was just pure evil. And yes, she'd been a teenager, and she was now almost 30 and a totally different person. Yeah, I'm, like, not that kind of person anymore. That was horrible. But, like, I would never, like, I never apologized to individual women. And punks are supposed to be better than that. So she did at least apologize to Jay. Sent her an email. You deserve and have, for 10 years, deserved a real and hurtful apology from me. I belittled you and made you feel unsafe. It has been difficult for me to accept the role I played as an abuser, but I am understand that I must in order to... And when I read the apology, it's pretty apparent that she cares. She cares about how what she did affected me. And... That was the first time that I felt like, oh, wow, Emily has a heart. (laughs) If the story of the call-out stopped here, it would be easy to understand what it accomplished. Emily owned up to Jay's accusations, and Jay felt satisfied, like her pain had been finally acknowledged. But vigilante justice isn't tidy and judicious like that. There's no parole hearing, no letter arrives in the mail to declare process complete. In call-out culture, once you're a known abuser, the community is kind of done with you. Because worrying about the abuser's pain means you're not taking the victim's pain seriously enough. Do you know what happened to Emily? I don't. um, I know, like, a little bit, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know much about her life at all. To her? Um, I haven't seen her, I haven't heard about her, nothing. She's just... I mean, do you care? No, I don't care. I don't care, because it's obviously something you deserve, and it's something that's been coming for a minute. I literally do not care about what happens to you after the situation. I don't care if she's dead, alive, whatever. She was feeling isolated, Uh, feeling depressed, uh, desperately in need of social contact. This is Richard Wrangham, a professor of biological anthropology. And the person he's talking about is his fellow anthropologist, the late Jean Briggs. In the 60s, Briggs had embedded herself with an Inuit community. The long winter and steady diet of fish really got to her, and she lost her temper a few times. And this tribe was very, very sensitive to displays of anger. So they decided to teach her a painful lesson by socially isolating her. Her tent was not being visited very much. She started finding that the Utku people were no longer wanting to interact with her. I called up Rangam because in his career, he's looked at the pain that we humans inflict on people who are brutal or cruel. For an upcoming book, Rangam traces the long arc of punishment, social and physical, from the very beginning of the human species. And he looks at the purpose of something like ostracism, making someone sit alone in an igloo or leave their community of friends. The social pain is intense. It is an extremely effective way of trying to get other people, someone who has offended the community, to change their ways. Rangham says that we register social isolation in the same parts of the brain that register physical pain. 
And prisoners of war have said something like that, too, that solitary confinement is just as tormenting as physical abuse. So from the brain's perspective, banishing someone is in some ways like a physical flogging. It doesn't leave marks on the body, but it can be just as damaging. But communities have always done it because it allows them to reinforce their moral code, to define themselves, and to keep the community safe. Keeping the peace, yes. Pain. For years, we've tried to tame the infliction of pain, built rules around who can do it, when, and how. And a kind of dirtiness still clings to people who take pleasure in the affliction of physical pain. But let's sit for a second with this uncomfortable thought. Maybe we've sold pain short, not given pain enough credit for all the ways it has helped us. Because Rangham says even the most extreme kind of pain was necessary. He told me that to go from early humans to the civilized people we are today, we actually had to kill people. And it was deliberate. Whispers start happening, and those whispers lead to the point where the community decides that somebody needs to be killed. Shot in the back, a rock being dropped on his head in the middle of the night. As Rangham sees it, the biggest threat to early human societies was persistent bullies who ruled by brute physical violence. So one of the great advances forward in early human history was when subordinate men, with the help of weapons and language, banded together to execute the bullies. So essentially what you're saying is we became domesticated, we became sort of human at the point of a spear, basically. We became human at the point of many spears, exactly. Um, oh. Yes, it's, it's a startling thought. I mean, one problem is I think we like to think of ourselves as getting better through wisdom and self-knowledge, and we got more intelligence over the, you know, thousands of years. Yeah. Could there have been another way, possibly? Um, well, I, I mean, I'm certainly not so arrogant that, that I would say that, that there couldn't be something else, but um, I haven't seen it yet. I asked Rangham if he found it depressing when he discovered that our civilization rests on a mountain of pain. But he said no. He finds it comforting. He says whenever he's felt hurt or ostracized by a group of people, it helps him to think that over the course of history, humans have been vigilant this way. When the group coalesces around a new code, they will crush anyone who breaks it. It's not personal. It's just what humans do. I think what it does do for me is just it reminds me that everybody is capable of being a victim and everybody is capable of being the executioner. You know, that the, the human dynamic is so strange because we feel morally uprighteous and yet circumstances can move us in one direction or another to be on the top or the bottom. So it, it does you know, serve to remind me of how arbitrary life can be. When the moral code changes, you can easily end up on the other side of it, facing down the executioners. That's what Emily learned. It just wouldn't stop. It just, like, wouldn't stop. I was scared. After the break... We'll hear how the Richmond hardcore scene dealt with Emily. Stick around. This message comes from NPR sponsor Pocket Casts. Are you a power podcast listener? 
Then try Pocket Casts Plus, made for podcast fans who want even more from their podcasting app. Pocket Casts Plus has more ways to listen, access to cloud storage, and more customization options. And they're offering a free three-month trial to elevate your listening experience. Find out more at pocketcasts.com NPR. This is Shankar Vedantam, host of Hidden Brain. If you like this episode, check out a show we did that looked at a man who was repeatedly accused of sexual harassment. For decades, nothing happened. Until now. Find out how Me Too turned into a revolution. The episode is called, Why Now? This is Invisibilia. We are telling the story of a woman in the Richmond hardcore scene who got called out for being a bully to other women. We'll now hear how the scene decided to punish her. Hannah picks up the story. What happened to you? Like, I, I, we, we talked about what you feared would happen. Like, what actually happened as a punishment? I'm not allowed to come to shows anymore. I'm not allowed to participate in anything. Not allowed to make music anymore. I mean, it, it, it's entirely my life. Like, it's been that way since I was... 12 or 13, like, this is everything to me. And it's all just, like, done and over. Emily has never talked publicly about what being punished feels like, because that's not done in call-out culture. It would signal that she's focused more on herself than on her victims. Even with us, she kept policing herself, saying she had no right to tell her story. But we felt like we needed to know it, because it's a part of the call-out. I didn't leave my house. I didn't leave my house for, like, what felt like months. I was scared. I did nothing for so long. I hid. After the call-out, all Emily did was go to work and then go home to her boyfriend in their one-bedroom apartment and hope that no one she knew saw her. One time when she did go out, a woman from the scene grabbed her by the arm and Emily felt threatened. When Emily commented online about a show, another woman asked if Emily would be there because she feared for her life being in the same space as Emily. Someone else contacted a venue to make sure Emily wasn't going to be there. She said Emily's presence triggered her PTSD. Like, I don't know what to think of of myself other than, like, I am so sorry and I do feel like a monster. The message Emily got was, we're watching, we don't want you around. As for friends... Even good friends, they kept their distance. They unfriended her, they didn't say hi to her on the street, didn't invite her to shows. Because people don't want my name associated with them, it feels like. Like, I think people are afraid to be in a band with my name on it. I think people are afraid to be in a group picture with me. It's just psychologically like fucked me up for so long. Fall changed into spring. The Sisterhood Facebook page went dark. People called out new abusers. No one was contacting clubs about Emily anymore, and maybe no one was even watching. But that did not release Emily from her punishment. Because in call-out culture, it's no one's job to release a known abuser. Mostly, they just forget about you. I just feel like I'm in a limbo. Like, it consumes me, like... I lay awake and I'm like, fuck, this is my life now. Nobody's around. 
I have nobody to talk to. Emily started to erase herself. No public opinions, no gossip, or even jokes. Like, you truly honestly feel like you're going to spend the rest of your life, like, proving to some shadowy internet thing that you are a good person? I don't think I'm trying to prove. It's I'm trying to be invisible. (laughs) Emily understood the rules, and she was willing to play by them. But she hadn't yet put together how her pain and the bigger purpose were connected. Do you think the community is safer without you? I don't know. That's a crazy question that, like, cuts deep. Hearing you say that, I don't know. (laughs) I guess some people think so. Like, she's like a cartoon, dude, you know? Like... Please get that, like, frail white woman, like, shit out of my face, please. That guy making fun of Emily, that's Herbert, the person who launched her call out. And unlike Emily, he's not at all confused about what her pain accomplished. So it's basically, like, cry me a river. Yeah, like, cry me a river, you know? Like, yeah, I mean, that's what happens when you learn from things. That's what happens when you have experiences that teach you something is you keep thinking about it. You keep thinking about it. Herbert's fake crying is a bit much, but Herbert feels like Emily doesn't deserve his mercy because the way he tells it is, Emily hadn't just harmed someone in high school. She had directly harmed him. When Herbert had first started tweeting about Emily being fake, she'd gone to his house to confront him. At some point, she referred to him being a person of color in a way that totally offended him, and he latched on to that. She was like, I was initially nice to you because you were a person of color, and I was like... Excuse me? And then she said it again. Emily says those aren't the words she used and that it doesn't reflect how she feels about Herbert. But for him, that was all he needed. In his mind, it meant Emily deserved to suffer. His logic was, Emily offended me. She caused me pain. So in return, I have free license to cause her as much pain as I want. And if you really think about it, isn't that inching towards its own form of abuse? It feels harsh to me, this whole thing. It feels like a harsh way to go about things. I mean, that's my honest response. It feels rough. For sure. For sure. I agree with you. Um, And I knew that this was, like, a very harsh way to, like, just, like, literally just, like, take someone by the shoulders and just put them underwater. But you're comfortable with the harsh, I think. Yeah, I'm super comfortable with the harsh because, like, I want her to learn from this. Doesn't matter, like, what you're trying to do. If you're trying to progress, you're going to hurt people along the way. I must have looked dubious. So far in our conversation, Herbert hadn't given me any reason to believe that he cared about Emily's well-being, about her progress on the journey of life. I didn't even fully understand why he was so angry. He just kept coming up with new and contradictory reasons. And who assigned him the role of deciding who's a good feminist anyway? People told us he was barely part of the hardcore scene anymore. He must have noticed. Because then he told me a story. I'm going to get really personal here, but my dad was an abuser, for sure, when I was younger. Herbert said when he was little, he would go to school with bruises. His first grade teacher saw the bruises and told the principal. This lasted all throughout his childhood and into his teens. Herbert said his father was just raising him the same way he had been raised. And then one day when he was 16, he had this one huge argument with his dad. 
He's like, do you just slam the door, blah, blah. Then he slaps the shit out of me. Like his hands are fucking huge. And he just slaps hard, like callous. And he just slaps the shit out of me. And my ears ringing and my eyes welt up. But I just look at him and I'm like, no, fuck you. It was the first time Herbert had ever stood up to his father, put the full force of his six foot one frame into resisting. That's when he was like, whoa, like held onto his chair, you know? So. Wait, your anger worked? Uh, As opposed to, like, you were breaking down, it was, like, your anger that worked on him? Mm-hmm. And it's worked out, because my parents are, like, the best thing um, ever. I love my mom and dad a lot. Like, I cry every time I talk about them, because they're, like, so important to me, and, like, they're literally, like, my light. Um, It's just, like, I don't know. It's just, like, I guess a lot of, like, the way I think about, like, all this stuff and the way that, like, People should just atone. I think of it very, like, very sternly because it took so long, I guess, for my dad to, like, atone, you know? So I guess that's kind of where it's coming from. Herbert, in his own life, had proof of how pain could move you forward. He'd confronted his abuser. It was painful for both of them. But now they were good. How did you know your dad was really sorry? Um, because he still says sorry now. I'll call him. We start chatting for like five minutes, ten minutes, and then eventually towards the end of the conversation, he's like, you know, I'm really sorry about the past and like things I've done to you and blah, 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 but just know that like I want the best. And like just the fact that he still says sorry like means a lot because I guess... It's all the times he couldn't say sorry, you know? But, yeah. If you're an abuser, you should suffer. But in Herbert's view, this wasn't stagnation or pointless pain. It was vigilance, a way of proving that you were owning your sins and would not sin again. Like erecting a historical monument to the pain. Never forget. And as for the sinner, it gives you a way to go back into the world, even though you still feel ashamed. A year and a half after the call-out, a lot has changed. Herbert, for example, he shut down his social media accounts. He doesn't regret setting off the call-out, but he feels like inflicting pain in the way that he did, the power of it. It's like coming. <laughs> A little bit. Like you're like, <sighs> and then you're also getting that like feedback. And that's what I was getting high off of. I fed into it really hard and I don't like that. So was it worth it? What did Emily's call out and all the frenzy around it actually accomplish? Well, if you scrutinize it too closely, it doesn't look like perfect justice. For one thing, the call out didn't address other victims who'd been harmed by Emily in possibly worse ways than Jay. And it didn't catch all the abusers either. Emily was one of many, almost all men, who harassed girls in all sorts of horrible ways back then. And most of them were never called out. And some people told us that call-outs have actually created a culture of fear. 
especially if you call yourself a feminist, you're held to a higher standard and you get scrutinized more closely. But maybe this is just what people do when the house is infested and nothing else seems to have worked. They burn the house down to start over. And it's not a careful controlled burn, but it still sometimes works. Because if you zoom out, the scene in Richmond, it looks different now. It doesn't make news when there's a female-fronted band and sexual assaults don't as easily get swept under the rug. Now, whether call-outs were critical to this progress, people debate that. Some say the change was happening anyway. You can take the first right, right up here. And what about Emily? When we caught up with her in January, she was sure she'd never have her old life back. But she was testing the waters, going to shows here and there, not standing on the stage or anywhere near the stage. What she would do is stand by the door and sell tickets, something concrete to do with her hands so she wouldn't feel nervous. And seeing the new scene blossoming, she could finally start to see beyond her own pain. If you could choose the world after call-out culture or before, like, which world would you choose to live in, knowing everything you know about it? Wow. I want girls to feel safe and, like, not just girls, but, like, anyone that's, like, outnumbered and not normally welcome to, like, the outside world of punk. Like, that's why we're all here, because we're not welcome. I want everyone to feel safe and welcome. So if that's the price of call-out culture, then, yeah, I prefer that world. That's Hannah Rosen and producer Yoe Shaw. When you gonna, when you gonna, when you gonna, when you gonna call me again? When you gonna call me again? Stay tuned after the break for a few moments of non-zen. This message comes from NPR sponsor Pocket Casts. From Hidden Brain to How I Built This, from Planet Money to Code Switch, enjoy all your favorite NPR podcasts on Pocket Casts, a free and feature-filled podcasting app. And now they're offering NPR listeners even more. Try Pocket Casts Plus for three months free and take your podcast listening experience to the next level. Visit pocketcast.com slash NPR to redeem your trial. When you gonna call me again? That's it for our season. Invisibilia is hosted by me, Elise Spiegel. And me, Hannah Rosen. If you want more information about how different communities handle accountability, visit the webpage for this episode at npr.org slash invisibilia. Our show is edited by Ann Gudenkoff. Caratello is our executive producer. Invisibilia is produced by Megan Kane, Yahweh Shaw, Abby Wendell. Woo, woo, woo. Our project manager is Liana Simstrom. Lulu Miller is a contributing editor. A huge 
huge thank you to Laura Kramer and Nikki Stein, who brought us today's story and did so much reporting and editing and were our guides to the hardcore scene in Richmond. Oh, the gym is another thing, actually. Oh, yeah, the gym's huge. The gym's huge. And, speaking of Richmond, thank you to The Warehouse, to Darcy Myers, Valentina Lopez, and Zephyr Acosta-Lewis, and all the people we talked to in Richmond. Also to David Auerbach, Chris Bohm, Josh Four, Rael Griffin. We had help from Alex Cheng, Rebecca Ramirez, Mark Memet, Micah Ratner, Rachel Brown, Sarah Knight, Meredith Rizzo, and Andrew Flanagan. Special shout out to Jay Sizz for mastering all of our episodes this season. Neva Grant, John Hamilton, Michael May, Vicky Valentine, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Colin Dwyer, Nicole Kligerman, Lauren Ober, Eliza Dennis, Catherine Whalen, and Daniel Renning helped with the editing. Our technical director is Andy Huther, and our vice president of programming is Anya Grenman. Special thanks to Zachary Acosta-Lewis for composing a bunch of original music for this episode, his band Division of Mind for the song Bright Out, the members of ICE for letting us use several songs, the band Peels for the song Become Younger from their album Honey from Rough Trade Publishing, Blue Dot Sessions and Ramtin Arablui for other music in this episode, Ryan Schwab for his good taste, and to Lucy Stone and Grave Goods for letting us use this awesome song WYGCMA to close out the show. For more information about this music and to see original artwork by Sarah Wong for this episode, visit www.npr.org slash invisibilia. And now for a few moments of non-zen. Hardcore parking lot edition. Did you ever get hurt? No. Like come home with the show like your nose is bleeding or anything? I mean, my nose is crooked, as you can tell. A friend of mine has lost a few teeth. Passed out on the ground. Somebody hit me really, really hard. It was awesome. It's like every other show he goes to, it's like he gets he has less and less real teeth. What's the percentage of real teeth versus fake teeth at this point? Well, by now, oh. probably 50-50. <laughs> nah. Nah, it's not that bad. It's not that bad out here. See you next season for more... I wish punk. we could have somebody have punk, punk out like yeah. invisible. You know how they talk For like that? For more invisibilia. Just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you so much for listening to the fourth season of Invisibilia. We literally would not exist without you. So from the bottom of all of our hearts, thank you. If you want to stay connected with Invisibilia in between seasons, plus get updates about us, about what's coming up next, you should subscribe to our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash Invisibilia. We promise we're only going to send you an occasional update and not spam your inbox. So sign up now. That's npr.org slash newsletter slash Invisibilia. See you soon.